Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This summer season, we are talking about the book Companions in Suffering, Comfort in Times of Loss and Loneliness by Wendy Alsop. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today is Wendy herself. We're feeling pretty honored. Wendy, glad to have you here. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. We're going to start our podcast like we usually do with our first things first question. And Wendy, you're going to answer it first. Okay. And I'm going to ask you the question, give a brief bio on yourself, then answer the question, and Aaron and I will chime in as well. So first things first question is, if you were forced today to thoroughly clean out your clothes closet, what three items would be the first to go and why? All right. So who am I first? Yes. I am Wendy Alsop, and I am an author and a mom and an educator. I um, teach math at our local community college in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and wrote Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And I have two teenage boys, one who is about to graduate from high school. I have two dogs and a half. I actually have two and a half dogs because my cousin's dog, who lives across the street, really thinks she's mine. Okay, you, for a minute there, I was trying to envision half a dog. So I uh, appreciate you <laughs> we clarifying. My cousin and I, I got you. we co-parent uh, his <laughs> dog and um, three cats. So, and, and, and I hope nobody's allergic to cats because I realized that my cat slept on my jeans last night. So <laughs> I have a cat too. I'm not allergic. Aaron? Again. Not allergic. Not allergic. Okay. You're good. good. All right. So what would I take out of my closet? Well, I, I was telling Amber and Aaron ahead of time, but I am a hoarder. Uh, one stop short, you know, not quite. They're not going to make a documentary about me yet. But, <laughs> but if um, they did, it would be okay. It would be okay, right? Yes. But my mom and dad just moved out of um, their home of mm-hmm. over 50 years. So it was a home. I'm 53 and it was a home they brought me to when they brought me home from the hospital. And suffice it to say, there was a lot that we went through in the home. But one thing is that my mom actually has good taste in clothes. And she had a lot of clothes she didn't wear anymore. And I would look at it. She's like, do you want this? I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, that is my size. And that's a really great brand. But it's like great clothes for an 82 year old. (laughs) (laughs) You're saving them. (laughs) I know. So I brought home at more than three things, but I can think of three things right now that I put them on. I'm like, well, this is great quality, but that looks horrible on me. And I take it back off and I do it multiple times. And I just need to know it's not going to look any different <laughs> the next time I try to put it on. So Until you're 82. Until I'm 82. <laughs> and it's wool and it's tailored. I mean, come on, how can you let it go? Exactly. I feel you. Exactly. So that's me. So if I were cleaning out my closet, if, if you know me, you know that I do not own a lot of clothes purposefully so i like to keep my closet slim pickings it's executive functioning that's what the the cool kids tell me that you just know what's in there you know you love them all they're clean you pick one you wear it decision done so i don't know if i have any clothes necessarily to purge i do have a pair of rubber boots that could probably they're a little too big and they're super heavy i got them when i worked back in the a kitchen like 20 years ago that i could probably i think they're like it's same wendy I, when it's a good quality like these mm-hmm. are a great quality pair of rubber boots like why would i get rid of them but i never wear them a hoarder mentality is the moment you get rid of them you will need them oh that's how i would think about it so yeah i literally haven't worn them in 20 years yeah. i need to just right what size are you? Do you want me to pass them on? I think they're eights, eight and a half. That's my size. No. Should we run by the house on the way? They would look great with that wool sweater. Oh, gosh. 
isn't the rule something like if you haven't worn in the last six months? Is it three months or six months? There I is a know. rule There's out some there. Some type of rule. Is, is it, it six? six? Oh gosh. Okay, toss it. So I think yeah. twenty years falls into that category, Erin. Well, but they're such a practical staple. One never knows when he might need a pair of boots. Right. Okay, well, I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit, Erin. And when I'm thinking about your closet, I'm remembering that show, What Not to Wear. Did y'all ever oh, watch that rude. show? That's not, rude. not because of you. Not I'm like, done here. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. What I meant is that I was always fascinated by the fact that they would have all of the items that they purchased for this person hanging on a rack at the end of the show. And they would show you, you know, we purchased five tops and three pairs of pants and, you know, two pairs of shoes, whatever. And they could make like 20 outfits. Uh And so that is sort of that idea. Like you don't have to have a ton, but you kind of need to have the right thing. So I hate to shop. Like, Mm -hmm. I really hate to shop. I have to have somebody go with me. I Mm -hmm. call them my personal shopper. I don't hire one. It's usually a friend because I can't make any decisions. And my Mm -hmm. goal is always to have just just buy me something that I know will work and I can wear it with, you know, multiple things. So I try to do that. And people are always probably like you kind of amazed. My personal shopper, whoever they happen to be, will come and assess my closet and they'll Mm -hmm. be like, well, where's the rest of your stuff? I'm like, that's it. That's what I got in there. End of the road. So I'm kind of like, you don't have a ton to throw away, except I was thinking I've held on to like a couple pairs of shoes mm-hmm. but again, because I don't like to shop. So mm-hmm. if I, if I don't, if I know I have to wear shoes mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm right. going to dress up and you kind of have to have a pair of nice shoes, right. well, I might as well hang on to that pair mm-hmm. of nice shoes that I don't really like because I'm probably not going to go get another pair. Right. And I have a couple pairs of uncomfortable, nice shoes that I could probably toss out probably some exercise pants that have seen their last day and would not be appropriate to wear again wear them in the garden i could wear them in the garden that's true what size are your shoes you could pass them over to wendy (laughs) you can go home with rubber boots and stilettos there you go there you go it's a perfect combination you can do anything in those two things Well, I think that we laugh, but when you do, you know, when you have things in your closet, whether you tend to be on the hoarding side or whether you tend to be on the minimalistic side, there is an attachment that we have with the things in our closet Mm -hmm. and they represent things that are familiar to us, things that we wear a lot or use a lot or have memories like working in a kitchen, you know, in rubber boots 20 years ago attached to them that Mm -hmm. obviously mean something to us or we wouldn't have a hard time getting rid of them. And I just was thinking as we move into talking about this book today, Companion, Companions and suffering that the subtitle is finding comfort in times of loss and loneliness and even if it's just something as simple as tossing something out of your closet you feel that momentary loss that you're detaching from something well that's small but we know that in our life there's big things that get pulled out from our lives or taken away from us or things that we don't receive that we would hope that we would that cause us to feel that sense of loss and loneliness. Wendy, you've told us a little bit just about your bio, but we would love to know what prompted you to write this book in particular. What from your life story led to the writing of Companions and Suffering? Well, in um, 2012, my um, now ex-husband was diagnosed, well, had the first onset of symptoms that we would eventually come to realize was um, schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. schizoaffective disorder. And it turned our lives, obviously, on their side. Mm -hmm. And it resulted in a divorce that I didn't want, but he was in a very different place and I was unable to influence it. And so this, of course, devastated my life. Like, it's like, 
you have a chest set and a fist just comes down on it. And I was just starting to get my feet back under me after that. Um, moved to South Carolina to the safety net of my family and um, to raise my boys, who I think were seven and nine or eight and 10 at the time. And right as I was starting to get my feet back under me, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was even that second mm-hmm. diagnosis on top of the other that just really socked me in the gut, knocked knocked my feet out from under me. And I spent the next bit really feeling alienated. You know, it started with the divorce and my ex-husband's very unique struggle compared to my mm-hmm. my social group mm-hmm. did not have people struggling like that that I know of. And because in part, a lot of people who struggle like that tend to move to the sidelines of life. And yeah. so that's what I felt myself doing, alienation, mm-hmm. moving to the sidelines of life. And the Lord really met me in it. Uh, uh, the verse that really comforted me, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And that was something I clung to. And I had already written books before that. And so I had an agent as I was coming out of it somewhat on the other side who worked with me. And we really felt like, I felt like very confidently, I was not the only person who struggled with alienation in times of suffering. And so that's really the route that we wanted to take. We are not left as orphans to figure this out on our own, even though we feel alienated from society or family. And often it's not because people are doing it from us, but it's because of what's going on in our own head and our own perceptions Mm -hmm. of how others might see us. So those were kind of the things that set it up for me to write. How long did the putting together of this book take for you? Once we started working on the idea and I I started working through what what it was I wanted to put together or what did I think would actually be helpful, probably about a year and a half to two years from start to finish of my writing. Now, the, the entire publishing process is longer. Was the writing itself, I don't know if cathartic is the right word, but did you find some of those things coming together even as you were writing or did you find that those things had come together already and you were putting them on paper? Both where, you know, I had things that were already on my brain, but then as I put it on paper and, and, and also had the pressure of making this not just me in my own head, but making this communicable in a way that others could relate to it or understand it was really, really helpful to me. There were a lot of parts of the pain that I had stuffed down just for to survive because Mm -hmm. I I had to get out of the bed. I had two small children that needed me. So there were a lot of parts that I didn't process really until I started working through it at that level. Did you have somebody that you processed with as you were writing? Was there somebody that was most helpful to you as you put this together? Really, my editor was um, very, very helpful to me. Some some authors are not fans of their editors, but mine was really helpful in, to me to think how, first of all, I had this way I wanted to communicate it, and, and she was like my first audience. So if I can't convince her of this flow of thought, and um, eventually I did convince her, but she was able to help me know how to articulate it so someone else can follow the flow of thought um, and and understand where we're starting and where we want to go. And so my editor was a really lovely person. Mm. Did you know her before you wrote this book? No, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. The gift of a good editor is so good. Like help you trim the fat. Even I I find so often going back and forth with um, a person I love that helps me edit stuff. And I'm like, that's where I'm bringing in flavor. And she's like, no, it's not clear. It just helps you kind of get objective about it. So that's, 
I mean, that's such a gift to have a good editor. Yeah, and it's really important not to take it personally. Right. It's hard. <laughs> it's yeah. hard, yeah. Yes. Yeah, because it's like your baby, you yeah. know, and this, and on a topic like this, it's really personal. Right. Yes. So it, it was, but she was really good. Yeah. One analogy you use several times in the book is the idea of the pariah, and you kind of come back to that a few times. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you're inviting people that have maybe felt alienated or detached from their group? How you move from feeling like a pariah into like, how do you pass through that? Yeah, I think one of the great things is to recognize how many other folks also feel like a pariah. And I, I had two illustrations that really stayed in my head. And one was this that I used in the book of um, you have a warm room and you're on the outside in the cold, hungry, watching what seems like a, a warm party around the fire with good food. And they're all happy and, and you're on the outside looking in. And another vision I had a lot was of like a cruise ship with everybody partying on and I've fallen off and I'm just treading water trying mm. not to drown. And they're all going on with life without me. And mm. for me, it was recognizing actually that's just in my head. Mm. And not necessarily that there's nobody oblivious going on with their lives, but that there are as many people struggling and suffering. Like, you know, when you really think about suffering, everybody right. at some level mm -hmm. is suffering or coming out of suffering or has a dear loved one suffering. So the alienation we felt really, I, that was a big thing for me was to recognize how much of it was my own. Sometimes it was pride. Mm. Um, but a lot of it was shame uh, because I, particularly around my divorce, I had been raised from youth group to choose a Christian husband and I had gone to Bible college and I was setting myself up for this life of obedience to God and mm -hmm. I thought my family was supposed to look like it. Mm -hmm. And so it just really shook me um, with shame and, and in some sense a conviction because I had probably looked at other people like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was my own conviction. Wow. Wow. Um, so it was it, it was not terrible for me to feel that way in the end, because it, it um, refined me and exposed some sin in my own heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that how you talk about how I don't remember exactly what you called it, but how wise choices equal a good life was kind of the gospel that was maybe not the gospel you profess, but the gospel that you were operating out of and how you moved into a different good news that Jesus is the good news of the cross is that we move through death, we pass through death into life. And it's I think helpful for all of us to just evaluate what is the what is the good news that we're professing? Right? Yeah, I call it the prosperity gospel of conservative evangelicals. Yeah. And we we do it in youth group, we try to convince kids that if you make the wise choices, you're setting yourself up for a better life. And then life comes at you and does some things anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's good for us to kind of think through a better way to articulate mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that kind of hope does put us to shame. Like if mm -hmm, we're putting right. hope in our good choices, that's not going to always pan out for us. Like most of the time it's not. But I love how you speak to our hopes in Jesus. Like there's a, a greater hope right here. Well, it takes it takes form. I'm just thinking as you're talking in big circumstances like you're describing and in small ones. And I think even just 
little minor things with my boys recently. Something doesn't go their way or it makes me afraid that they're going to miss out on blah, blah, blah or whatever. I would totally mentally affirm Okay, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, right. evangelical conservatism. Conservatism. That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. <laughs> but when something like that happens, you're like, well, I guess I do. You know, it mm-hmm, is that refining right. part that, that re- in the ability to admit for me, all right, that is something to repent of. Right. And, but, and, I, and I also resonate with what you're saying. I know that feeling of assuming everybody thinks X mm-hmm. and, and I'm really angry that everybody feels X or I feel really bad that everybody feels X and I'm convinced that they do. Right. And for the Lord to gently probe into me and say, what's going on mm-hmm. with you, Amber, that you think all of these things. But, but I like that you in your chapter didn't say, now don't be thinking that don't mm-hmm. be worried about that. Don't be, you know, whatever, but that they're really legitimate feelings to mm-hmm. work through and they really do come and they, I would think would be almost unavoidable in areas of particularly intense and then ongoing suffering where people's lives really do seem to be on a different trajectory. Right. And you're on on a different one and it just doesn't seem like they they come together. Right. I mean, some people will go on in a different direction than you do. Yeah. And that's a loss to be mourned, but it's a reality and it doesn't take away our um, hope for the future. Mm -hmm. But it is very disconcerting to watch. I I had the situation I remember so well of I had been leading Bible study at my church and I love that Bible study. And they waited on me when I was first diagnosed. And, you know, the goal was when I recover from this first surgery, but then it was in my lymph node. And so I was having more treatment. Oh, well, when you recover from that, and then they discovered another tumor. Well, when you were, I mean, at some point they just have to go on with the Bible study. And I remember when I just finally told them, I don't know when you need to do this without me. And that I really mourned that mm-hmm. because that had been such a, a, a ministry I loved so much. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle at all resenting that they were moving on? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I had to discipline it out of me. Mm-hmm. This is good and right, Wendy, that they move forward. You mm-hmm. want them to move forward. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing it, putting me to the side. But they they tried to wait on me. They want mm-hmm. me to be a part of it. And I had to really lecture myself. <laughs> How do you do that combination? Because I feel like sometimes I get stuck in this is we want to allow ourselves to mourn something, mm-hmm. right? But the feelings of resentment or bitterness or discontent can be so closely coupled. How did you determine, like, how did you let yourself mourn something without resenting it? What did that discipline look like to you? One of the things that I, I can catch myself knowing I have an unhealthy thought pattern. I cannot necessarily, once I diagnose it, get myself out of the unhealthy thought pattern. So for Mm -hmm. me, the answer is not, oh, that's unhealthy. Here's what I need to do instead. I go, I flee to the prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, where uh, Paul prays that, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open and you would see the hope that you have. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll do that. I'm like, I know I'm thinking about this mm-hmm. wrong, Lord. I pray that you would open my eyes, that you that the same power that rose Christ from the grave would transform my, my mind. I need you to help me get to this other place. And God has never left me mm-hmm. flailing after that kind of that prayer. 
That's super helpful to me who thinks the thing over and over and over again. What you're saying there was I can think the right thing, but I can't maybe convince myself of the right Right. thing. And that going to the Lord and saying it's not my mind or my ability to wrap myself around this truth or concept myself that's going to free me from this. I need that supernatural. We need his help. Well, a lot of what you're talking about comes from chapter one. Is there anything else from chapter one, just your story or that talking about that sense of alienation or uh, feeling like a pride that you would want to add? No, I think we covered the good part of it. Just just I would like ladies to know that you're not alone in feeling that. And many people feel that way and that God has not left you as an orphan to figure it out on your own. Which is what then moves us into chapter two, because even when we feel alienated, oftentimes we do distance ourselves. But if we're not going to distance ourselves, we do tend to want to move towards one another initially to get that sense of comfort. But you don't go directly in your book to that companionship that we receive with one another, although you're going to get there. You talk first about the companionship we receive in Jesus and in his sufferings and knowing his sufferings and receiving his comfort in, in those sufferings. So you talk about in John eleven thirty five that shortest verse in scripture where Jesus wept yeah. and is found right in the middle of Lazarus. Uh, John's accounting of Lazarus's resurrection from the dead. And you mentioned that this verse especially made an impression on you as you contemplated the reality that even though Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept over the death and the suffering that had caused. So how did it matter to you personally in the midst of your suffering that that was Jesus's response to his encounter with the suffering that he knew he was about to heal and to restore? Well, it opens my eyes to put off at least how I was raised. I was raised in pretty conservative, fundamentalist evangelical circles. And there was such a pressure on having a good testimony in trials. But Mary and Martha were not props for Jesus to teach a lesson. What he does when he weeps with them is that they're his loved ones. And he feels their pain and he knows he has, by his choices, allowed pain in their lives. And also, I just think he is just recognizing suffering in general. This is all wrong. It's Mm -hmm. all wrong. And it was never meant to be this way. It was never meant to be this way. And this is why he came to to earth. And he's mourning the fall of man, really. Mm -hmm. It wasn't supposed to be like this. But it just comforts me because he's about to do a big lesson to them. And but but they're not props. And I'm not a prop. And, you know, my testimony is not a prop. God has allowed things in my life, but this is in relationship with him, not just to use me as a means to an end for his glory. Mm. And that that was important to me, especially you have these moments where really it's just you and God. A lot of moments, it's just you and God. And the ICU you know, I had a lot of people that came to me, see me in the ICU, but it's very limited how many folks could see you in the ICU or recovering at night when you can't sleep because you're in so much pain. There's just a lot of moments that even if you are surrounded by folks who love you dearly or after the loss of a loved one, there's just a lot of alone time and you need more than human contact, human contact. You need to know that God is real, God is there, and He is not just using you as a prop. He is with you, holding you, equipping you. Mm-hmm. And so that that was part and parcel of it, what it meant to me. Oh, that's, that's so helpful to hear that thought that we're not a prop, because when you do jump super quick to, okay, it's for the Lord's glory, I know it's for the Lord's glory, you can feel like 
I'm just a little puppet here being used for something, but you don't really care about me. And to recognize that he really does. And he does display his glory, but he does it because of the way he loves us in our suffering. Yep. Well, you make the point later in the chapter that not only is it important to understand that Jesus weeps with us, like you've just described, it's also important to know that he helps us in his, in our suffering as well. And you reference Hebrews 2.18, since he, Jesus himself, has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And you talk about how one of the versions uses that word, or that word help is also Sucker, am I pronouncing yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What was important about that word to you and what it meant that Jesus does for us? Yeah, maybe you, uh, us ladies, can have a conversation about it that might make the men feel really awkward. But, <laughs> you know, the 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 picture is that he's breastfeeding. You know, it's like that mm-hmm. similar language, nourishing like a breastfeeding mother would nourish her newborn. And what is it exactly? Well, that is a supernatural question. But I believe it's real. And, you know, he says that I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send the helper, the counselor, the nourisher. Mm. So we're indwelled with this helper, this paraclete, which is the Greek word for one who comes alongside of us in aid. So he's promising this one. And then Paul says at the end of Ephesians that this one is the same one that rose Christ from the grave is that power at work in us. So in the supernatural way, the Trinity is indwelling us and empowering us and equipping us. We we are not left to navigate this on our own. I know there was a, a moment I talk about a little bit in the book that was really intense for me in the ICU when I was alone. And Jesus nourished me so much through that moment of just being real to me and not in like a mystical vision kind of sense that we as Presbyterians would be very uncomfortable with, but just bringing to mind. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He brings to mind all that Jesus taught of himself. That's his ministry in our life. And the Holy Spirit just brought so much to mind in that moment that kept me and sustained me during that night most uh, about his Jesus's suffering I thought a lot about how Jesus suffered and I was in a lot of pain and so I thought about and I was I was taking a lot of morphine so Jesus suffered though without morphine mm-hmm. I think about how painful it was to be recovering with morphine and it made me think wow he did it without and I was I was suffering because I was sick and it was for my own healing. But he suffered also because I was sick and it was for my healing, not his own. He didn't mm-hmm. suffer for his own healing, but for mine. And um, just how the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance the things I knew of Jesus, which assumes you know things of Jesus. So it, I, if you don't know, don't make it up in your own head. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, mm-hmm. John. You know, mm-hmm. until these things are kind of, and if you can't read, Get it on audio Bible. Let some narrator Kristen read Getty. it. Yes. I mean, she'll read it to you. It's great. Oh, really? Oh, That's, yeah. Yeah. That's All right. Beautiful accent. Oh, that would be beautiful. I don't know whoever does the CSB Bible app, but that's who mm. read a lot to me, and he and I are real good friends now. Oh, that's great. <laughs> In theory. In my mind. In my mind. <laughs> In my head. That's great. You're answering this question in part for sure in that particular experience you just described in the ICU. But you posed the question at the end of chapter two for readers to answer. And it's what does it look like for Jesus himself to meet us in our alienation? Is that how does that look like in your life 
now. And you, you talked about that physical alienation, mm-hmm. you know, the ICU and that physical pain and just all of that, that spirit brought to mind there. How does that look like continually in your life? Maybe in particular with that sense of alienation that on the outside looking in when people kind of tend to go on and, and do various things. Yeah, I really, I found that as I've suffered that a lot of my, um, my mental, as I have a lot going on in my head, trying to um, navigate it and regulate my emotions, it is very easy for me to say, I do not feel like reading the Bible. I cannot focus on reading the Bible. And one of the real encouragements I just want to leave ladies is you need the Bible. Mm. And you don't need long portions of the Bible, but you need something. And, you know, going back to that audio Bible, it was a big practical help to me. And I would just listen until something stood out to me. And then I would stop it because my brain couldn't handle more than one thing and maybe repeat it. Okay, so I got through the first six verses. Let's go back and do that again. And and maybe the next day, oh, I, I remember something stood out to me, but my brain doesn't remember what it was. Go back and listen to the first six verses of whatever that was again, because we need it and we need it on repeat. And, and we also need to give ourselves the grace to know we can't handle a ton. And, and that's okay. You will be at some point again. But handle what you can, but you need something. You need it in your life. I remember in one part you were saying that, I guess I related to it because you were kind of emphasizing just how the Psalter gives us words to pray when we can't come up with our own words. Mm -hmm. It just gives us that language of limit. And there was a time in my life where I didn't carry my whole Bible around. I just carried a Psalter around with me. Mm -hmm. And that was what I read. That was what I could what I needed, what I could handle. And it was just the words I could pray back to the Lord when I didn't have the words to come up with on my own. Yep. And you're right. Like he meets us with his resurrection power, his life. He unites us with Christ. He unites us with his body. And it is one of those things that you can look back on that season and be like, the Lord did a work, even though I wasn't out killing Romans or whatever, whatever we would look at and be like, oh, that's serious Bible study. I think you, you pointed that out before. Like Romans is what we go to. Uh, We we really want to exegete. (laughs) Listen, Aaron, (laughs) you just said killing Romans and I could not like, who would want to kill Romans? <laughs> <laughs> what are we saying, really? Oh, that's funny. No, I get it now. Yeah. Well, we'll probing into that a little bit more because I think that's so true. I've I've heard that and I've felt that way, that when you're in that place where everything feels so heavy and difficult and hard and you feel lonely and you feel alienated and you can't get your mind in order or your emotions in order, order it, you don't feel like sitting down and doing quote-unquote Bible study. And so... What do you think we tend to gravitate to? What, what do you think we're looking for? And what do you think we tend to gravitate to instead of something like Bible study? Well, I often would gravitate toward amusement, which technically means without thought. So uh, amuse is a thoughtful person. Amuse is something that doesn't require thinking. And there's a place for that. You know, mindless television. I... I don't know why, but I would often go to documentaries, um, and sometimes it would be dark stuff, Dateline, 48 Hours, but I could check out in a way watching that, and so, and and not to be against that, I still love Dateline and 48 Hours for some reason, but, but I couldn't, I needed to recognize when I was using it as a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. and, and, and often you would recognize it the moment you, you turned it off. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, my gosh. Well, I need something more sustaining. And 
at certain times, I just could only have that phrase of scripture, like, be still and know that I am God was a very important one when I couldn't process longer things. Mm -hmm. That was a nugget that I would call on, and, and I have not left you as orphans. And a couple nuggets to hold on to in those moments to sustain me so that I could handle the quiet and that I didn't just need to go to unhealthy coping mechanisms to keep me from dealing with it at all. It's a good point, like how easy it is to use those, even maybe good things as an anesthetic instead of going to Mm -hmm. the deliverer. We're going to our mama, who's great. Like we want, want to call, you know, a trusted friend or a trusted parent or whatever. But I think ultimately it's, we're looking for deliverance, right. but we need to make sure we're checking with the deliverer before we're going to some some other maybe good option and for an anesthetic. It would be comical to me because I would, after a little while, I just totally recognized it that I didn't start praying until the three first people on my list, nobody answered their phone. Mm. Yeah. You know, so try friend number one that I can spill everything to, friend number two, sister number three, sister number four. Oh, well, I guess who am I going to talk to? I guess I have to pray, (laughs) you know, and then you're like, "Ah, duh. Yeah. And 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 always God does meet me in prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, he is faithful Mm -hmm. in that. And often it's, you know, you've you finish praying or or reading whatever scripture that you can take in in the moment and you don't feel different necessarily but often what i'll feel is some sense of relief all right now i need to get up and i can go forward and then at the end of the day so often the specific thing that had sent me over the edge which is usually not the main big thing but something on top of it how the lord would have met me in that and resolved something that just sent me to despair seemed like a hurdle I couldn't get over. Mm-hmm. You never call and he doesn't pick up in that sense. Oh, I know that's, that's a cheesy way to say that kind of, but it is true. You never, he never leaves you unanswered. And there is something, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't come with the direct feeling that you were hoping you would get, if you called said friend who, you know, always makes you feel like this when you talk to mm-hmm. her or whatever, but just that assurance that he has heard me and is mm-hmm. responding to me. And oftentimes, at least for me, it might not look like the way, like I, I usually have an end goal in mind. Mm-hmm. I would like to leave this time with the Lord feeling like this or having answered this question. It doesn't always, often doesn't meet my expectation, but it usually does exceed it in a way that's hard to explain. And yeah, part of that's right. just that I have the presence of the Lord peace with me. Presence. Yeah, there's something yeah. about that that is is definitely unique. And and I like the fact that you mentioned that the Holy Spirit brings it to our minds because I think sometimes we, at least I can, disconnect like the emotion in the mind and we feel mm-hmm. like we don't want to be too much in our mind. We want to be mm-hmm. in our heart. But just how important it is for our minds to know the things that then our hearts can grasp onto and right. to not jump over what might feel like an exercise of the mind hoping to get to the heart first. Right. Yeah, and that's a great point because especially when your bodies are sick, mm-hmm. we um, compartmentalize in a way, but we're we're whole people, mm-hmm. you know, where our mind and our heart are often controlled by our brain, which yeah. is affected by our hormones. So we have to uh, look at it holistically and understand that these three are all of one and they do co-effect each other. And um, it's an important thing to kind of keep a, a realistic understanding of what you can and cannot expect of <laughs> of all three too, right. probably in that in that place yeah 
So, Wendy, at the end of chapter one, you encourage us to find deep community with within his word, with union with him, within the body of believers. So knowing that at our church here at First Press and that any body of believers, you're going to have people that are kind of all over the map that are mm-hmm. at different positions in life, different um, volumes of suffering going mm-hmm. on in their life. What are some practical ways that we can come alongside each other in our suffering to understand one another, to encourage and be sensitive and patient one with another? Yeah. I think a lot of times we'll have folks in a community, some who have not yet suffered much in life, um, many who are in an intense season, and then you have some who maybe are coming out of an intense season. My encouragement to those who um, have not really experienced suffering, at least this was my temptation, was to want to solve someone's suffering. Mm-hmm. because I felt threatened by it because I didn't I wanted to believe that I'm not going to suffer like that if you are it's probably because of maybe some some choices that you made along the way I was mm-hmm. I was actually very disappointed in myself but it took some hard lessons of life to to learn it, it right but my encouragement to someone who hasn't really suffered is to come alongside and just sit what you know the Jews called sitting shiva you know, where you just sit with someone, you just endure with them and don't try to think you know how to solve it. And, and maybe it would benefit you to learn from it. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, you have folks who are coming out on the other side. And I think I need to give less information to someone like that, because I think you have in, in, innately and learned just through your own. And the big thing that my friends did for me, I had several who had been through pretty intense suffering ahead of me. And it's that they were not threatened by my emotional struggles. So they were safe people for me to just say, you know, I, you know, I had one friend that came over after they found a, a, a second tumor. Mm-hmm. And I was so thrown off that that this unexpected thing had happened on top of so many things. And I was throwing things and just yelling and and she was a pastor's wife, and she just heard it and and took it and prayed with me through it and helped me get over that initial hurdle of, I cannot believe this has happened, stomping around my house, you know, because she wasn't threatened by it. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to talk me into faith because my lack of faith threatened her faith. Her faith was solid because God had seen it through and she had confidence for me that God would see me through when I didn't have confidence for myself. And that's really something beautiful that those of us on the other end who have struggled deeply through long seasons of suffering can really bring to someone else is when you don't have confidence that you're going to make it through, I have confidence for you. Mm. On the flip side, for some of us who haven't struggled, I had a couple of people and it was like, my they, they called me up that I, you know, my struggles were causing them to, to, to doubt God. I'm like, oh, that's not very helpful I right can't now. handle your doubts. Yeah. Right. So try not to do that. <laughs> Pro tips with Wendy. <laughs> I love that. But also just be honest with yourself. You know, are you living in a prosperity gospel? Mm-hmm. And it's good for you to really come at this point, maybe before you've had intense suffering in your life, that, listen, we're living in a fallen world mm-hmm. and your best choices are not going to protect you from Satan totally. You know, Christ will protect us, but he protects our souls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He protects our souls. And you don't have to live in fear 
of what's going to happen, even though it's highly probable something there will be a struggle. Yeah. But have hope and that what you think will destroy you won't destroy you. I mean, that really is the hope that God gives us. The things that you think will devastate and leave you lying in the aftermath as everybody else goes on, actually, God uses supernaturally in really beautiful ways. That's why I always love that phrase that Joseph used when he named his son in Egypt, that I have been fruitful in the land of my affliction. Mm. And none of us can envision that on the front end. You just see the barren wasteland. But this is the miracle that our God does for us. That's great. How would you go about, or how did you go about finding, let's say in a large church like ours, and you know you're going through a season of intense suffering, but you're not exactly sure who could speak your language. How do you, how would you encourage maybe those who have gone through a season of intense suffering to be aware of folks who are in a similar position? I think you said you might just have an innate sense because you've experienced <laughs> it. Yeah. So you it might have a little bit of radar. Like you could see it in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, and, and, but then how would you encourage maybe someone who's just entered into it to seek out people who can speak that language a little bit better than, than maybe folks who haven't gone through it? Yeah, I think it's good to just be aware of who to keep on your radar. If you are entering a season of suffering, you need the in your life folks who have suffered before you and and but you what if you don't know their stories and that's the responsibility of those of us who have suffered. Don't keep those stories quiet, you know, be honest. I lost my child in a car accident. I lost my child to an overdose or suicide or, you know, I had a divorce after my husband had an affair with my best friend or something. You don't have to sensationalize them. But in your women's Bible studies, don't hide and pretend like you haven't had suffering in in your life. And if you feel like you're in a culture where people do hide it, then be bold in Christ and try to, to break that. Because the moment you are honest about your struggle, you'll probably find you know, others like, oh, yeah, me too. And and depending on the culture, a lot of us really hide because we think everybody's going to look at us when everybody else is hiding too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it just needs the first person to say, hey, I've really struggled. And I knew some folks and I had known them for a while before I really knew their story of suffering. And as I got to know stories of suffering, I'm like, you know what? Hey, I, I what I made was like a private Facebook group. I just ask folks, I'm going to, I need a place where I can be real and vulnerable. And if you don't want to do that, I'm not going to be offended. And people were so sweet and kind to me. And everyone in that group had really suffered intensely. And they were able to handle my fear and unbelief and struggle and anger and point me to Christ and be confident for me. And that really ministered so much grace to me. Mm. Well, when you say that right there, they were able, it reminds me of that part in your book where you talk about disabled Mm -hmm. um, Christians who haven't gone through that suffering are as able as those who have. Right. And how that can also help. I think it helps in two ways for those of us who maybe haven't gone through the intensity of suffering that somebody else has to recognize in some ways, even the smaller places of suffering to acknowledge them for what they are and to Mm -hmm. take those to the Lord and to learn that. So we do have some language to offer. Right. But then for those who are in those highly intense situations, I would imagine it helps to not feel 
quite as much resentment when you think of somebody as disabled versus unwilling, unkind, un. And they right. may be all of those things, but they may just not have the ability. And it's hard to say, you know what, I would really love for Aaron to be able to do that for me, but she just can't. So I'm going to have to go over here. Right. I'm not just going to have to go over here, but I have this good option. You know, I'm not angry at you, Aaron, because you can't give that to me. That's right. I'm going to go someplace else. And right. I feel like that's hard to do, though, when it's your people, you know, or it's people you've had friends with for a long time and you really have met each other in deep ways and then something comes into your life that hasn't come into theirs it's hard to not feel resentful maybe that they can't share in that the same way and to know what people are equipped to give you and are not equipped Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. even the best person who has great experience there are things that they aren't equipped to give you that you can only get from the holy spirit and christ and the word yeah and, and so just ha- accept what people can give. Yeah. I think just after you've passed through something like intense suffering, you do lose expectation of people delivering for you. Right. You know that your true hope is in the Lord, that thank you for your bucket of fried chicken. Right. And I think you can just feel not expect anything greater or you just have appropriate expectations. I guess. Right. And a lot mm-hmm. of people just don't know what to do. And I have been someone who did something minimal just to say I had done something when I didn't know what to do. And I have been someone who just totally went absentee because I was so unsure of what to do that I was afraid to engage. And now, having gone through things, I have a totally different perspective. And it's just show up, just call. You don't have to have an agenda. People don't need an agenda. They just need someone Presence. to listen. Yeah. yeah. I love how you were describing the pastor's wife that came walk into your situation and not bring shame. Right. Not bring any sort of gospel agenda to correct your theology, but just hear you without condemning you and just let you be where you are. Right. Let you process that for what it is. And yep. Just And you know, if I said some foolish, unbelieving things, she might pray with me at the end. Mm-hmm. Pray the Lord would help you get to the point where you see clearly and, you right. know, Lord, she needs help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And help me believe that mm-hmm. it's a yeah. wonderful prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe the best encouragement I would give to folks who have suffered and to come alongside those who are suffering now is, you know, what you really have to offer is that you aren't threatened by their despair. I mean, this is a unique thing that you can offer, that you're not threatened by their despair or their anger or their fear, their loss of direction. Um, with someone who's newly coming to terms with their own loss or their own diagnosis. And that quiet hope that you have is your testimony. It's not that you have to verbally tell them what God has done for you, but your quiet hope in the face of their despair is your testimony. Not being threatened by their lack of faith is your testimony. And praying for them in faith when they can't pray for themselves is your testimony of God's faithfulness. So it's not as hard sometimes as we make it out to be to come alongside. Mm. Well, it's a beautiful discussion about the gift of community, the gift of Christ's nearness to us, the unity that he ministers to us in his spirit, through his body, through his word. So thank you, Wendy, for being with us today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our second episode in the summer series. Take us on your summer bike ride along your favorite path. Next week, Angel and Regina will be with us from City View Seminary to talk about chapters three and four, fellowship and suffering and pleading for rescue in our summer read, Companions in Suffering. We hope you'll listen in. 
Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain.